Hello, my dear. I'm going to carry on reading. Um, actually, I haven't read since the last chapter, so this is a continuation. But you know, this book, there's no continuation, it's just random information that you have to put together. Um, although I have started discovering that there was a chapter that talks about a boy who sees something weird, and now I know who this boy is. It's, um, it's cinnamon. <laughs> Anyways, I think one day you will have to read the book to understand everything because even for me it's it's hard to understand everything as a whole. Anyways, chapter 16, The World's Exhaustion and Burdens and The Magic Lamp. The phone rang at 9.30 at night. It rang once, then it stopped and started ringing again. This was to be Ushikawa's signal. Hello, Mr. Okada, said Ushikawa's voice. Ushikawa here. I'm in your neighborhood and thought I might drop by. If it would be alright with you, I know it's late, but there's something I wanted to talk to you about in person. What do you say? It has to do with, with Mrs. Kumiko, so I thought you might be interested. I picture Mr. Ushikawa's expression at the other end of the line as I listened to him speaking. He had a self-satisfied smile on his face, lips curled and filthy teeth exposed, as if to say, I know this is an offer you can't refuse, and unfortunately, he was right. It took him exactly ten minutes to reach my house. He wore the same clothes he had on the three days earlier. I could have been mistaken about that, but he wore the same kind of suit and shirt and necktie, all grimy, wrinkled and baggy. These disgraceful articles of clothing looked as if they had been forced to accept an unfair portion of the world's exhaustion and burdens, if... Through some kind of reincarnation, it were possible to be reborn as Ushikawa's clothing, with a guarantee of rare glory in the next rebirth, I would still not want to do it. After asking my permission, Ushikawa helped himself to a beer in the refrigerator, checking first to see that the bottle felt properly chilled before he poured the contents into a glass he found nearby. We sat at the kitchen table. All right then, said Ushikawa. In the interest of saving time, I will dispense with the small talk and plunge directly into the business at hand. You would like to talk to Mrs. Kumiko, wouldn't you? Mr. Okada? Directly, just the two of you. I believe that is what you have been wanting for some time now. Your first priority, am I right? I give this some thought, or I pause for a few moments, as if giving it some thought. Of course, I want to talk with her, if that is possible. It is not possible, said Oshikawa softly, with an odd. But there are conditions attached. There are no conditions attached. Oshikawa took a sip of his beer. I do have a new proportion for you this evening, however. Proposition, not proportion, what am I saying? <laughs> proposition. Please listen to what I have to say and give it careful consideration. It is something quite separate from the question of whether or not you talk to Miss Kumiko. I looked at him without speaking. To begin with, then, Mr. Okada, you're renting that land and the house on it from a certain company, are you not? The hanging house, I mean. You're paying a rather large sum for it each month. You have not an ordinary lease, however, but one with an option to buy some years hence, correct? Your contract is not a matter of public record, of course, and so your name does not appear anywhere, which is the point of all the machinations. You are, however, the de facto owner of the property. 
and the rent you pay accomplishes the same thing as mortgage payments. The total sum you are to pay, let's see, including the house, comes to something in the neighborhood of 80 million yen, does it not? At this rate, you should be able to take title, title to the land and the building in something less than two years. That is very impressive, very fast work, I have to congratulate you. Ushikawa looked at me for confirmation of everything he had been saying, but I remained silent. Please don't ask me how I know all these details. You dig hard enough, you find what you want to know. If you know how to dig, and I have a pretty good idea who's behind the dummy company, now that was a tough one. I had to crawl through a labyrinth for it. It was like looking for a stolen card that's been repainted and had new tires put on and the... Oopsie, sorry. And the seats recovered and the serial number filled off the engine. Filled or filed? I think it was filed, yeah. They cover all the bases. They're real pros, but now I have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Probably better than you do, Mr. Okada. I bet you don't even know who is who is it you're paying the money back to, right? That's alright. Money doesn't come with names attached. Oshikawa laughed. You're absolutely right, Mr. Okada. Money does not come with names attached. Very well said. I'll have to write that down. But finally, Mr. Okada, things don't always go the way you want them to. Take the boys at the tax office, for example. They're not very bright. They only know how to squeeze taxes out of places that have names attached. So they go out of their way to stick names on where there aren't any. Not just names, but numbers too. They might as well be robots for all the emotion that's involved in the process. But that is exactly what this capital society of ours is built down, which leads us to the conclusion that the money that you and I are now talking about does not does indeed have a name attached, and a very excellent name it is. I looked at Ushikawa's head as he spoke. Depending on the angle, the light proceeded some strange dents on his scalp. Don't worry, he said, with a laugh. The taxman won't be coming here. And even if he did come, with this much of a labyrinth to crawl through, He'd be bound to smash into something. Wham! He'd raise a huge bump on his head. And finally, it's just a job for him. He doesn't want to hurt himself doing it. If he can get his money, he'd rather do it the easy way than the hard way. The easier, the better. As long as he gets what he's looking for. The brownie points are the same. Especially if, if his boss tells him to take the easy way, any ordinary person is going to choose that. I managed to find what I did because it was me doing the searching, not to boast or anything, but I'm good. I may not look at it, looked it oy, but I'm really good. I know how to avoid injury. I know how to slip down the road at night when it's pitch black out. But to tell you the truth, Mr. Okada, and I know you're one open person can really open up to, not even I know what you're doing in that place. I do know the people who visit you there are paying an arm and a leg. So you must be doing something special for them that's worth all that money. That much is as clear as counting crows now. On snow. Counting crows on snow. Okay, got it. I thought it said cows. What would I think about that? I have no idea. Where was I? Okay, but exactly what is it you do? And why don't you stack on that particular piece of land? I have no idea. Those are the two most important points in all this. But they are the very things most hidden, like the center of a pounced signboard. That worries me. <coughs> Which is to say, that's what worries Noboru Wataya, I said. Instead of answering, Oshikawa started pulling on the matter fuzz above his, above his ears. 
This is just between you and me, Mr. Okada, but I have to confess, I really admire you. No flattery intended. This may sound odd, but you are basically a really ordinary guy. Or to put it even more bluntly, there is absolutely nothing special about you. Sorry about that, but don't take it wrong way. It's true, though, in terms of how you fit in society, meeting you face to face, and talking with you like this. So, I'm very, very impressed with you, with how you handle yourself. I mean, look at the way you've managed to shake up a man like Dr. Wataya. That's why I'm just a carrier pigeon, a completely ordinary person, couldn't pull this off. That's what I like about you. I'm not making this up. I may be worthless scum, but I don't lie about things like that. And I don't think of you in completely objective terms, either. If there's nothing special about you in terms of how you fit in society, I'm hundred times worse. I'm just an un uneducated twerp from awful background. My father was a tatami maker in Funabashi, an alcoholic, a real bastard. I used to wish he'd die and never leave me alone. And he, not never, and he, leave me alone. I was such a miserable kid. I ended up getting my wish for better or worse. Then I went through storybook poverty. I don't have a single pleasant memory from childhood. Never had a kind of word from either parent. No wonder I went bad. I managed to squeak through high school, but after that it was a school of hard knocks for me. Lived in my waist with a little I had. That's why I don't like members of the elite or official government types. Alright, I hate them. Walk right into society through the front door, or get a pretty wife, self-satisfied bastard. I like guys like you, Mr. Okada, who'd done it all on their own. Oshikawa struck a match and lit a fresh cigarette. You can't keep it forever, though. You're going to burn out sooner or later. Everybody does. It's the way people are made. In terms of evolutionary history, it was only yesterday that men learned to walk around on two legs and get in trouble thinking complicated thoughts. So don't worry, you'll burn out, especially in the world that you're trying to deal with. Everybody burns out. There are too many tricky things going on it. Too many things, too many ways of getting into trouble. It's a world made of tricky things. I've been working in that world since the time of Dr. Wataya's uncle. Now the doctor has inherited lock, stock and barrel. I used to do risky stuff for a living. If I kept it up, I'd be in jail now, or dead. No kidding. The doctor's uncle picked me up in the nick of time. So these little eyes of mine have seen a lot, a hell of a lot. Everybody burns out in this world. Amateur, pro, it doesn't matter. They all burn out. They all get hurt. The okay guys and the not okay guys. That's why everybody takes out a little insurance. I've got some too. Here's at the bottom of the heap. That way you can manage to survive if you burn out. If you're all by yourself and don't belong anywhere, you go down once you're out. Finished. Maybe I shouldn't say this to you, Mr. Okara, but you're ready to go down. It's a sure thing. It says so in my book, in my big black letters about two or three pages ahead. Toru Okara, ready to fall. It's true. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm a whole lot more accurate in this world than weather forecasts on TV. Oops, my voice. So all I want to tell you is this. There's a time when things are right for pulling out. Ushikawa closed his mouth at that point and looked at me. Then he went on. So let's stop all these feelings each other out, Mr. Okada, and get down to business. Which brings us to the end of a very long introduction. 
So now I can make you the offer I came here to make. Ushikawa put both hands on the table. Then he flicked his song over his lips. So, let's say, I've just told you that you ought to cut your ties with that land, pull out of the deal. But maybe you can't pull out, even if you want to. Maybe you're stuck until you pay off the loan, off your loan. Ushikawa cut himself short and gave me a searching look. If money's a problem, we have got it for you. If you need 80 million yen, I can bring you 80 million yen in an ice, neat bundle. That's 80,000, 10,000 yen bills. You can pay off whatever you owe and pocket the rest, free and clear. Then it's party time. Hey, what do you say? So then the land and building belongs to Noboru Wataya? Is that the idea? Yes, I guess it is, the way things work. I suppose, I suppose there are a lot of annoying details that will have to be taken care of, though. I gave his proposal some thought. You know, Ushikawa, I really don't get it. I don't see why Noboru Wataya is so eager to get me away from that property. What does he plan to do with it once he owns it? Ushikawa slowly rubbed one cheek with the palm of his hand. Sorry, Mr. Okada, I don't know about things like that. As I mentioned to you at first, I'm just a stupid carrier pigeon. My master said me what to do, and I do it. And most of the jobs he gives me are unpleasant. When I used to read the story of Aladdin, I'd always sympathize with the genie, the way they worked him so hard. But I never dreamed I'd grow up to be like him. It is a sad story, let me tell you. But finally, everything I've said to you is a message. I was sent to deliver. It comes from Dr. Vataya. The choice is up to you. So what do you say? What kind of answer should I carry back? I said nothing. Okay, here's parenthesis. So Noboru Wataya, the guy who wants to buy the land, is the brother of Komiko. Komiko is a wife of this guy, remember? So this whole story is going back to that place. Okay. Of course, you will need time to think. That is fine. We can give you some time. I don't mean for you to decide right now, on the spot. I would like to say take all the time you want, but I'm afraid we can't be that flexible. Now, let me just say this, Mr. Okada. Let me give you my own personal opinion. A nice, fat offer like this is not going to sit on the table forever. You could look away for a second and it might be gone when you looked back. It could evaporate, like mist on a window pane. So please give it some serious thought. In a hurry, I mean, it's not a bad offer. Do you see what I mean? Ushikawa sagged and looked at his watch. Oh my, 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 I've got to be going. Overstate my welcome again, I'm afraid. Enjoyed another beer. And as usual, I did all the talking. Sorry about that. I'm not trying to make excuses, but I don't know. When I come here, I just seem to be settled in. You have a comfortable house here, Mr. Okada. That must be it. Ushikawa stood up and carried his glasses and beer bottle and ashtray to the kitchen sink. I'll be in touch with you soon, Mr. Okada, and I'll make arrangements for you to talk with Mr. Kumiko, Mrs. Kumiko, oops, Miss Kumiko, <laughs> that I promise you can look forward to it soon. After Ushikawa left, I opened the windows and let the accumulated cigarette smoke out. Then I drank a glass of water. Sitting on the sofa, I cuddled the cat, Mackerel, on my lap. I imagine Ushikawa removing his disguise when he was one step beyond my door and flying back to Noboru Wataya. It was a stupid thing to imagine. Okay, I hope there are not too many pauses because um, I realize that this is a straight one audio, so... I do pause a bit more when I'm reading, especially because otherwise it hurts. Anyways, um, reading next chapter 17, The fi Fitting Room. 
a successor. None men knew nothing about the woman who came to her. None of them offered information about herself, and none men never asked. The names with which they made their appointments were obviously made up, but around them lingered that special smell produced by the combination of power and money. The woman themselves, so not make here's parenthesis, is the person who was sharing the story about the zoo, and it's also the lady who is helping paying uh, Mr. Okada the house with the well. Okay, where was I? Um, but Nutmeg could tell them from the style and fit of their clothes that they came from backgrounds of privilege. She rented space in an office building in Akasaka, an inconspicuous. <laughs> I meant that word. Inconspicuous building in an. Oh goodness, again, in an incos inconspicuous place, out of respect for her client's hyperactive concern for their privacy. After careful consideration, she decided to make it a fashion design studio. She had, in fact, been a fashion designer, and no one would have found it suspicious for a variety of women to be coming to see her in succession numbers. Her clients were all to be women in their 30s to 50s of a sort that could be expected to wear expensive, tailor-made clothes. She stocked the room with clothing and designed sketches and fashion magazines, brought in the tools and working benches and mannequins needed for fashion design, and even went so far as to design a few outfits to give the place an air of authenticity. The smaller of the two rooms she designed off as the fitting room. Her clients would be shown to this fitting room, and on the sofa they would be fitted by nutmeg. Her client list was compiled by the wife of the owner of a major department store. The woman had chosen a very carefully limited number of trustworthy candidates from among her wide circles of friends. Convinced that in order to avoid any possibility of a scandal, she would have to make this a club with an exclusive membership. Otherwise, news of the arrangement would be sure to be spread quickly. The woman chosen to be, oh yeah, sorry, to become members were warned never to reveal anything about their fitting to outsiders. Not only were they women of great discretion, but they knew that if they could. If they broke their promise, they would be permanently expelled from the club. Each client would telephone to make an appointment for a fitting and show up at the designated time. Knowing that she need not to fear encountering any other client, that her privacy would be protected absolutely. Honoraria were paid on the spot, in cash, their size having been determined by the department store owner's wife at a level much higher than Nutmeg would have imagined, though this never became an obstacle. Any woman who had been fitted, so whenever I use the word fitted, it's actually on, on quotes, okay? So we don't know yet what it means. But nutmeg always called for another appointment, without exception. You don't have to let the money be a burden to you. The department store's owner's wife explained to nutmeg. The more they pay, the more assured this woman feels. Nutmeg would go to her office three days a week and do one fitting a day. That was her limit. <clears throat> Cinnamon became his mother's assistant when he turned 16. Cinnamon is the guy, his boy, okay? By then, it had become difficult for Nutmeg to handle all of the clerical tasks herself. But she had been reluctant to hire a complete stranger. When after much deliberation, she asked him, she asked him to help her with her work. 
He agreed immediately, without even asking what kind of work it was she did. He would go to the office each morning at 10 o'clock by cab, unable to be or being, a, being with others on buses or subway trains, clean and dust, put everything where it belonged, fill the vases with fresh flowers, make coffee, do whatever shopping was needed, put classical music on the cassette player at low volume, and keep the books. Before long, Cinnamon had made himself an indispensable presence at the office. Whether clients were due that day or not, he would put on a suit and tie and take up his position at the waiting room desk. None of the clients complained about his not speaking. It never caused them any inconvenience, and, if anything, they preferred it that way. He was the one who took their calls when they made appointments. They would state they preferred time and date, and would knock on the desktop in response once for no and twice for yes. The woman liked this. Concession. He was a young man of such classic features that he could have been turned into a sculpture and displayed in a museum. And unlike so many other handsome young men, he never undercut his image when he opened his mouth. The woman would talk to him on their way in and went out. He would respond with a smile and a nod. These conversations relaxed them, relieving the tensions they had brought with them from the outer world and reducing the awkwardness they felt after their fittings. Nor did Cinnamon himself, who ordinarily disliked contact with strangers, appear to find it painful to interact with the woman. At 18, Cinnamon got his driver license. Nutmeg found a kindly driving instructor to give him private lessons, but Cinnamon himself had already been through every available instruction book and absorbed the details. All he needed was the practical know-how that couldn't be obtained from books. This he mastered in a few days at the wheel. Once he had his license, he poured over the used car books and bought himself a Porsche Carrera, using as a down payment all the money he had saved working for his mother none of which he had ever used to ever had to use for living expenses. He made the engine shine, bought it all new parts through a mail order, but new put new tires on, and generally brought the car's condition to a racing level. All he ever did with it, though, was drive it over the same short, jam-packed route over every day from his home in Hiro to the office in Akasaka, rarely exceeding 40 miles an hour. This made it one of the rarer Porsche 911s in the world. Hmm. Interesting. I want a car now. Anyways. Nutmeg continued her work for more than seven years, during which time she lost three clients. The first was killed in an automobile accident. The second suffered permanent expulsion for a minor infraction. And the third went far away in connection with her husband's work. These were replaced by four new clients. All the same sort of fascinating middle-aged woman who wore expensive clothing and used aliases. The work itself did not change during the seven years. She went on fitting her clients, and Cinnamon went on cleaning the office, keeping the books, and driving the Porsche. There was no progress, no retrogression, only the gradual aging of everyone involved. Nutmeg was nearly fifty, and Cinnamon turned twenty. Cinnamon seemed to be enjoying his work but Nutmeg was gradually overcome by a sense of powerlessness. Over the years, she went on fitting the something that each of her clients carried within. She never fully understood what it was that she did for them, but she continued to do her best. The somethings, meanwhile, were never cured. She could never make them go away. All that her curative powers could do was reduce their activity somewhat for a time. 
Within a few days, usually from three to ten days, each something would start up again, advancing and rotating over the short span with growing unmistakably larger over time, like cancer cells. Nutmeg could feel them growing in her hands. They would tell her, you're wasting your time, no matter what you do, you're going to win in the end. And they were right. She had no hope of victory. All she could do was to slow their progress and what? To give her clients a few days of peace. Nutmeg would often ask herself, is it not just this woman? Do all the women of the world carry this kind of something inside them? And why are the ones who come here all middle-aged women? Do you have something inside me as well? But Nutmeg did not really want to know the answers to her questions. All she could do, be sure of what the circumstances had somehow conspired to confine her in her fitting room. People needed her, and as long as they went on needing her, she could not get out. Sometimes her sense of powerlessness would be deep and terrible, and she would feel like an empty shell. She was being worn down, disappearing into a dark nothingness. At times like this, she would open herself to her quiet son, and Cinnamon would nod as he listened intently to his mother's word. He never said anything, but speaking to him like this enabled her to attain an odd kind of peace. She was not entirely alone, she felt, and not entirely powerless. How strange, she thought. I heal others, and Cinnamon heals me. But who heals Cinnamon? Is he like a black hole, absorbing all pain and loneliness by himself? One time, and only once, only that once, she tried to search inside him by placing her hand on his forehead, the way she did to her clients when she was fitting them, but she could feel nothing. Before long, nothing nutmeg felt that she wanted to leave her work. I don't have much strength left. If I keep this up, I will burn out completely. I'll have nothing left at all. But people continued to have an intense need for her fitting. She could not bring herself to abandon her clients just to suit her own convenience. Nutmeg found a successor during the summer of that year. The moment she saw the mark on the cheek of the young man who was sitting in front of a building in Shinjuku, she knew. Ah, now we're getting to get more information. Okay, I'll read one more chapter. I think I'll stop for today, at least reading out loud. I'll probably carry on reading. I'm so curious about this book. But surprisingly, there are like 150 pages left. And I'm still surprised why on earth we don't get anything out of this. I mean, it's just getting more and more twisted. But anyways. <sighs> Chapter 18. A Stupid Tree Frog Daughter. Make a Sahara's point of view four. Hi again, Mr. Winnetbird. It's 2.30 in the morning. All my neighbors are sound asleep, but I can't sleep tonight. So I'm up, writing this letter to you. To tell you the truth, sleepless nights are, as usual, for me as sumo wrestlers <laughs> who look good and bear it. Usually, I just sleep right into sleep when the time comes. I sleep right out when it's time to wake up. I do have an alarm clock, but I almost never use it. Every rare once in a while, though, this happens. I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get back to sleep. I'm planning to stay at my desk, writing this letter to you until I get sleepy, so I don't know if this is going to be a long letter or a short one. Of course, I never really know that time that any time I write to you until I get to the end. Anyways, 
It seems to me that the way most people go on living, I suppose there are a few exceptions, they think that the world of life, or life, or whatever, is this place where everything is, or supposed to be, basically logical and consistent. Don't close the window, I mean there's too much noise. Talking with my neighbors here often makes me think that, like when something happens, whether it's a big event that affects the whole society or something small and personal, people talk about it like, oh well, of course, that happened because such and such. Most of the time people will agree and say like, oh sure, I see, but I just don't get it. As A is like this, so, it's, so that's why B happened. I mean, that doesn't explain anything. It's like when you put instant rice mix in a bowl in the microwave and push the button and you take the cover off when it rings and there you've got rice pudding. I mean, what happens in between the time when you push the switch and then the microwave rings? You can't tell what's going on under the cover. Maybe the instant rice pudding first turns into macaroni grating in the darkness when nobody's looking and only then turns back into rice pudding. We think it's only natural to get rice pudding after we put rice pudding mix in the microwave and the bell rings. But to me, that's just a presumption. I would be, I would be kind of relieved if every once in a while, after you put rice pudding mix in the microwave and it drank and you opened the top, you got macaroni grating. I suppose I'd be shocked, <laughs> shocked, of course, but I don't know. I think I'd be kind of relieved too. But at least I think I wouldn't be so upset because that would feel in some ways a whole more a whole lot more real. Why more real? Trying to explain that logically in words would be really very, very hard. But maybe if you take the path my life has followed as an example and really think about it, you can see that it had been almost nothing about it that you could call consistency. First of all, it's an absolute mystery how a daughter like me could have been born to two parents as boring as three frogs. I know, it's a little weird for me to be saying this, but I'm a lot more serious than the two of them combined. I'm not boasting or anything, it's just a fact. I don't mean to say that I'm any better than they are, but I'm a more serious human being. If you met them, you'd know what I mean. Mr. Winebird these people believe that the world is as consistent and explainable as a floor plan of a new house in a high-priced development. So if you do everything in a logical, consistent way, everything will turn out right in the end. That's why they get upset and sad and angry when I'm not like that. Why was I born into this world as the child of such absolutely dumb mates? And, I, and why did I turn into the same kind of stupid tree-frog daughter, even though I was raised by those people? I've been wondering and wondering about that ever since I remember, but I can't explain it. It seems to me there ought to be a good reason, but it's a reason that I can't find. And there are tons of other things that don't have logical explanations. For example, why does everybody hate me? I didn't do anything wrong. I was just living my life in the usual way. But then, all of a sudden, one day, I noticed that nobody liked me. I don't understand it. So then, one disconnected thing led to another disconnected thing. And that's how all kind of things of stuff happened. Like, I met the boy with the motorcycle, and we had that stupid accident. The way I remember it, or the way those things are all lined up in my head, there's no, this happened this way, so naturally that happened that way. 
Every time the bell rings and I take off the cover, I seem to find something I've never seen before. I don't have any idea what's happening to me. And before I know and before I know it, and I'm not going to school anymore, and I'm hanging around the house, and that's when I meet you, Mr. Winnebird. No, before that, I'm doing surveys for a wig company. <laughs> Goodness. But why a wig company? That's another mystery. I can't remember. Maybe I hit my head in the accident, and the position of my brain got messed up. Or maybe the psychological shock of it started me conveying up all kind of memories. The way a squirrel hides a nut and forgets where he's buried it. Have you ever seen that happen, Mr. Winnebird? I have. When I was little, I thought the stupid squirrel was so funny. It never occurred to me the same thing I was going to happen to me. So, anyhow, I started doing surveys for the wig company. And that's what gave me this fondness for wigs like they were my destiny or something. Talk about no connection. Why wigs and not stockings or rice scoops? If it had been stockings or rice scoops, I wouldn't be working hard in a wig factory like this, right? And if I hadn't caused that stupid by accident, I probably wouldn't have met you in the back alley that summer. And if you hadn't met me, you probably would never have known about the Mia Wacky's well. So you wouldn't that wouldn't have gotten that mark on your face, and you wouldn't have gotten mixed up in all those strange things. Probably, when I think about it like this, I can't help asking myself, where is there any logical consistency in the world? I don't know, maybe the world has two different kind of people, and for one kind of the world is this completely logical rice pudding plate, and for the other it's all hit or miss macaroni cream. I am so amazed by this girl. But if those three frog, <laughs> three frog parents of mine put rice pudding mix in the microwave and got macaroni grating when the bell rang, they just tell themselves, oh well, we must have put macaroni grating mix by mistake. Or they take out the macaroni grating and try to convince themselves, this looks like maca, oops, this looks like macaroni grating, but actually it's rice pudding. And if I try to be nice and explain to them that sometimes when you put in rice pudding mix, you get macaroni grating, they would never believe me. They probably get just get mad. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you, Mr. Winebird? Remember when I kissed your mark that time? I've been thinking about that ever since I said goodbye to you last summer. Thinking about it over and over, like a cat watching the rainfall and wondering what was that all about. I don't think I can explain it to myself, to tell you the truth. Sometime, way in the future, maybe 10 years, 20 years from now, we have a chance to talk about it, and if I'm more grown up and a lot smarter than I am now, I might be able to tell you what I meant. It meant. Right now, though, I'm sorry to say, I think it's just, I just don't have the ability, or the brains, to put it into the right words. One thing I can tell you honestly, though, Mr. Wendat Bird, is that I like you better without the mark on your face. No, wait a minute, that's not fair. You didn't put the mark there on purpose. Maybe I should say that even without your mark, you're good enough for me. Is that it? No, that doesn't explain anything. Here's what I think, Mr. Winnebird. That mark is maybe going to give you something important, but it also must be robbing you of something, kind of like a trade-off. And if everybody keeps taking stuff from you like that, you're going to be worn away until there's nothing left of you. So, I don't know, I guess what I really want to say is that it wouldn't make any difference to me if you didn't have that thing. 
Sometimes I think that the reason I'm sitting here, making wigs like this, every day is because I kissed your mark that time. Oh, this is getting more complicated, Julia. Oh, where was I? It's because I did that, that made, I made up my mind to leave that place, to get as far away as I could from you. I know I might be hurting you by saying this, but I think it's true. Still, though, it's because of that that I was finally able to find the place where I belong. So, in a sense, I'm grateful to you, Mr. Wind-up Bird. I don't suppose it's much fun to have something, somebody be in a sense of grateful to you, though, is it? This girl says a lot, though, in this letter. But anyways. So now, I feel like I've said just about everything I have to say to you, Mr. Wind-up Bird. It's almost 4 o'clock in the morning. I have to get up at 7.30, so maybe I'll be able to sleep three hours in a little bit. I hope I can get sleepy right away. Ooh! Unexpected yoni by case! Anyhow, I'm going to end this letter here. Goodbye, Mr. Wanna Bird. Please say a little prayer so I can get to sleep. <laughs>